Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me via Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies, my co-host for this program. And uh, tonight we're going to return to the terrestrial ecosystems, but we're going to stay underwater. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, Tim. Uh, very happy to be uh, returning to the, the rivers, to the freshwater ecosystems. And uh, our guest tonight is Dr. Sarah Kupferberg. That's K-U-P-F-E-R-B-E-R-G. She's a uh, independent scholar and uh, consulting scientist. Uh, she's got a PhD from UC Berkeley and uh, she works on Northern California freshwater ecosystems and she knows a lot about yellow-legged frogs so we're maybe uh, talk a lot about those but then also uh, it's kind of a little bit about the food web ecology of, of some of the uh, major streams in Northern California and um, maybe talk a little bit about the uh, Eel River, South Fork of the Eel River where the Angela Reserve and is Sarah has some connection to. So Sarah, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, perhaps you could give a uh, little bit of your background for our uh, listeners so they understand kind of where you're coming from and how you got to be interested in freshwater systems. And, uh, and uh, I guess you're uh, a herpetologist by adoption. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, my interest in freshwater systems uh, goes all the way back to my childhood. Uh, I spent all my, I grew up on the East Coast and uh, I spent all my summers uh, on a lake. And I was just in the water all the time. Um, and to, to the point where I developed a skin fungus <laughs> because I was never dry. And so after, you know, I went to, college, studied biology, and then when I went to graduate school, I landed at UC Berkeley, and I was in the lab of uh, Dr. Mary Power, and she focuses on freshwater food webs, starting with the algae and uh, diatoms that grow attached to rocks, and then looking at the consumers of the algae, and then the predators that eat those consumers, and how... Uh, and how, how, how energy and biomass flow through the system and then it even gets exported to the terrestrial environment because especially in, in Northern California, the bugs, all the invertebrates that grow as larvae in the stream, they emerge and they feed the forest around them. So the emerging insects are eaten by the bats and the birds and the spiders. Um, so it, there's, there's a, a subsidy that happens from the food web in the river feeding the forest during a time of year when it's not particularly productive, when it's all dry. And you have some uh, connection to the uh, Mendocino County, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I, um, well, I, I did my uh, research for my dissertation back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s at the Angelo Reserve. And I keep going back every single year, and I've been monitoring the population of frogs there. I started out very interested in their ecology, especially the tadpoles and their role as grazers of algae. But then uh, 
over time, I, I also became interested just in the population biology and looking at how the numbers fluctuated through time. And it's very convenient that females, each female lays one very distinct clutch of eggs on rocks in the river. So by going out in the spring and counting the number of clutches of eggs connected to the rocks, I actually got a really good estimate of the number of breeding females in the population. So every spring I go back, uh, you know, about every 10 days or two weeks and I conduct a, a breeding census. Uh, there's a core, like about five kilometer stretch that I, I monitor every year. And then there's other other places I, I also monitor, but this will be my 30th year going to the Angelo wow. Reserve to do the, the breeding census. So I have a, an uninterrupted data set of the time series for the population, which is pretty unusual for. Uh, yeah, 30 years. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, and, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that, that's a theme we've had a couple of times with these long term continuous data sets and the immense value that they can sometimes offer. Yeah, so it's it's been a, a labor of love because I don't always have funding to do it. Um, and, you know, and, and I've added other bits and pieces. So I started monitoring the reach around um, the old Bembo Dam. So prior, you know, I knew that it was slated for removal. So a few years uh, before they did the deconstruction project, I started monitoring that reach. And then with the help of the folks from the Eel River Recovery Project. We had some public outreach days where we got citizen scientists to come and help count egg masses. Um, so I've, I've also been monitoring there to see how the frog population responds to the dam removal. And also during the years when uh, the actual deconstruction was happening, we decided it would be a lot easier to keep the frogs out of harm's way with all the bulldozers um, by moving the clutches of eggs uh, outside of the impact zone. Because otherwise you'd have thousands and thousands of tadpoles everywhere and it would be really hard to prevent them being squashed. Um, so with the help of Eel River Recovery Project, we you know, relocated egg masses during those construction years. So you didn't always have funding, but did you always have a wetsuit? <laughs> Either that or waders. I need to bring gloves yeah. to keep my hands warm because, yeah, the water's pretty cold in the so spring. Do, and you, do you actually dive to count, or do you have one of those little boxes you can look down into? Um, I, I've, I've made view boxes. Um, and and generally, if, if the water's clear and you're wearing polarized uh, sunglasses. You can you can see the egg masses. They're pretty much out in the open. Sometimes the frogs, if if it's in a place where the current velocity is is kind of swift, they may tuck their egg masses up and under big boulders or rock ledges. Um, so you have to kind of stick your hand up underneath and count by by braille, feeling them. <laughs> Which is I always I always jerk my hand back, even though I know I'm specifically looking for this jelly-like substance every time I feel it. It's <laughs> so that was your PhD research as well? Was that your thesis work or well, is this no, something that actually, came out? Um, 
monitoring the population was not part of my thesis. I was really focused on the food webs. So um, if you think about it, each each female lays an incredible number of eggs, you know, like 1,500, 2,000, maybe more. But in order to maintain a population, they only have to replace themselves. So essentially what that means is that tadpoles are eaten by a lot of other things. There, there's very low survival of uh, tadpoles to frog. So they're an important link in the food web. They graze algae and, and actually they, they have a very specialized uh, mouth part. The, the foothill yellow-legged frogs have, have uh, multiple rows of, of keratinized teeth. So they're excellent scrapers of diatoms that otherwise might adhere quite tightly to rocks or there are some diatoms that stick on to other larger algae. Anyway, they have really efficient mouth parts and they're great at scraping. So they are an important link in converting all of this biomass of algae in and turning it into dragonflies and turning it into herons and, you know, just turning it into snakes. There's all kinds of things that eat tadpoles. So they're an important link in the food web. So they are, they're a bit like the snails in the marine system with the radula that go along and yes. scrape the rocks. Yes, and, uh, yes, exactly. Except instead of just one radula, like they have six rows above their beak wow. and six rows below. So they're incredibly efficient. Um, and so that was a lot of what I studied um, for, for my uh, dissertation was their effects as grazers and how the tadpoles of the yellow-legged frogs really have a different impact as grazers than even tadpoles of other species uh -huh. because of their highly specialized mouth parts. They're, and they're very benthic. They're, if you want to make another marine analogy, if you think about a flounder, you know, they have their eyes migrate to the tops of their heads. Well, that's what the tadpoles look like. They're sort of, you know, they're they're flattened and their eyes are on the tops of their heads. So they're very aware of predators that are higher up in the water column. So they're just and, and they're very dense. You know, they sort of sink to the bottom. Interesting uh, stuff, huh? Yeah. yeah. So so each female lays only one egg mass. Yes. Per okay. yes, yes, yes. And how long does it take that egg mass to, um, to uh, th those larvae to hatch out? Well, the embryos can hatch out in a week or two weeks, all depending on the temperature. So if yeah. the water's really cold, uh, it takes longer. And then again, depending on temperature and the kinds of algae that are present, mm -hmm. it can take... Um, you know, another 10, 12, or even longer weeks for the tadpoles to turn into little frogs. I see. Um, and what's, um, what it's really another amazing thing about, about these frogs and their life history is that the adults really like being in dark shaded tributaries higher up in the headwaters of, of our streams in Mendocino County. But when it's dark, there's not a lot of algae growing on the rocks and the water's really cold. So in order for them to complete their life cycle, they have a breeding migration that's sort of in the opposite direction of salmon. So we think about salmon coming from the ocean and trying to get to those dark headwater streams. Well, the frogs are 
moving as, as the salmon are moving upstream, the frogs are moving downstream. And so they move many, many kilometers from their resident habitat in the tributaries and they hop their way or swim with the current down to the larger main stem channels where it's wide and sunny and uh, and abundant algal resources for them. And then and, they, uh, yeah, they, move, they move back, they do a reverse migration when they uh, are about ready to spawn. Yeah, so they go, they go from the headwaters to the main stem to spawn and then they turn around and go back upstream. And the females, uh, they just go mate, lay their eggs and turn around and go back. And the males arrive first. So they, they go back to the same spots on the, on the river year after year. So there's a lot of site fidelity and site reuse. And it, it's called the lek mating system where you know males will all come to this same spot and they wrestle each other and fight for territories. And then females come, they mate and they leave. So the, the males take a higher risk, you know, so snakes, I think, know where these lek sites are and other predators, you know, so I, I often find, you know, like partially eaten frogs, unfortunately, you know, probably avian predators hone in on, on these sites as well. So when, when you're counting the eggs, uh, how do you know you haven't counted a, an egg mass before? <laughs> come, come back uh, for a return visit to well I, I mark them so, and I've over the years I've tried all different devices my my first year uh, you know I used the typical uh, flags that field biologists use and I didn't stop to think that the metal part of the flagging would rust in the water <laughs> so it was a huge mess pulling them out so then later I decided to move to something that was biodegradable and I could just leave in the channel. So I used wooden popsicle sticks and I could write the number on the popsicle stick, but then it was always really tough getting them into the, into the bed. So uh, I think one year I ran out of popsicle sticks and, and Mary, my mentor just happened to have some packages of uh, bamboo shish kebab skewers in her kitchen. So I could, actually, we ended up uh, using those, and that's that's the way I mark them is with sticks. And okay. you know, they they're pointy, so they go into the bed. So I just put a stick next to each one, and I know then I haven't yeah. double counted. And um, I love it. Yeah, the, and what's the, and by doing that, also you know, I go back every week to ten days, so I can calculate what percent of the clutches. Uh, strand as the water level falls. If we get a late spring rain, I can see what percent get washed away. And because the sticks are are flexible, even in a late rain, they kind of bend over and the sticks huh. don't get washed away, even though the clutches do. So I, I have a good estimate of, of survival. And I, I've been working with um, some really terrific biologists from the U.S. Geological Survey who are doing a mark recapture project at one of the same sites that I use on the Angelo Reserve. And we've gotten very close correspondence between the number of egg masses that I observe and the number of females that they um, they put little uh, pit tags, which are, you know, it's a passive 
Oh gosh, now I can't even remember what it stands for. But it's like when people get their cats or dogs microchipped uh -huh. and then it can be read with a reader. So they do that for the frogs. And so the estimates that they're getting from that mark recapture and the numbers that I count at the lek sites that are in close proximity to the tributary they're focusing on, we get very good correspondence. And actually what's really neat, we haven't gotten the results yet, but last year they put up a wire, an antenna across Fox Creek, which is one of the tributaries on the Angelo Reserve. So they can, um, with their the frogs that they've been marking over the last few years, they will be able to know exactly when they migrate out of the tributary to the lek site on the eel and how long they spend on the eel and when they go back upstream. So they'll be able to see how much earlier the males arrive than the females. They'll be able to see, you know, do the biggest females come early versus late. Um, so it's, it's going to be a really, some really cool results to understand a little bit more of the mysteries of their migration. Yeah, the marine ecologists are putting down uh, listening posts and marking marking uh, migratory fish and so forth. And uh, that, there's quite a few big programs that are kind of looking at, uh, you know, where these fish go. <laughs> they mark, they move around the sharks and tuna fish, of course. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and of course, the other really big migration in the eel and how the eel got its name is um, it's the lamprey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's also quite interesting, just the the timing, like of when the lamprey are building their nests is very similar to the time when the frogs are laying their eggs. And um, recently, we found some interesting interactions between the the lamprey and their nest building, and how it affects other parts of of the food web. Another colleague from Mary Powers Lab, two of her students who are, have recently finished their dissertations uh, have been looking at how when the lamprey build their reds, they kick up a lot of invertebrates out of the rocks. And then the juvenile salmonids uh, key in on that and they hover just downstream of the, of the nest that the lamprey are building and they eat all of the insects that are being kicked up. And then <laughs> what I found was that then the frogs would come and they would lay their eggs inside of the pot. It kind of looks like a campfire ring. The lamprey move some of the bigger cobbles and they place them in a ring and they expose smaller substrate that they like for their eggs in the middle. But the frogs use that as a velocity refuge. So they tuck their eggs in there and they get several extra centimeters of depth. So as the uh, stage of the river declines, having the lamprey there prevents them from, the egg masses from drying out. So it's, really yeah, so all of these migrations are, you know, there's an incredible synchronicity in, in the interactions and the timing yeah. of, of all the different organisms in, in the food web. Yeah, these river systems are yeah amazingly complex with the, all the different things that are happening uh, seasonally with the flow flow and chemistry changes. Yeah. If you just joined us, by the way, you're you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, and our guest tonight is Dr. Sarah Kupferberg, and she is an independent scholar and consulting ecologist, 
And her um, specialty that we're discussing tonight is research in the Eel River on the foothill yellow-legged frog, a California native species that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Kupferberg, but they are a species of, of concern conservation-wise? Yes, yes, they are. Uh, well, in recently, there were petitions to have them protected by both the California Endangered Species Act and the Federal Endangered Species Act. And the decision for um, for California was to protect, protect each genetic grouping within the species differently. So there are, um, uh, the different genetic groupings are called clades or, or branches in the genetic tree of the species. And the clade that's in Northern California, which obviously includes the North Coast, uh, remains a species of special concern. But throughout the rest of the state, they are not faring as well as they are in the North Coast. The North Coast seems to be the place where they're there are still healthy and robust populations that you know are connected to each other and have lots of individuals. But in Southern California, like the Southwestern clade, that spanned from all the way from Monterey County down to um, Northern Baja. And that now there's only one place left where, where they exist in uh, southern Monterey County, sort of on either side of, of a ridge in Los Padres National Forest and on uh, Fort Hunter Liggett, the army base. So there they are considered endangered. And similarly, um, the Central Coast clade, there's just a handful of populations that persist in the Bay Area. So they're considered endangered, they're protected as endangered there. And then in the Sierra, they are, uh, they have a designation as threatened. And there's three different Sierra clades. And what's really cool about one of the Sierra clades is uh, it's a, a portion of the Sierra that was not glaciated in the most recent period of glaciation. So around the North Fork Feather River. And that clade, there's actually been hybrids that are found between foothill yellow-legged frogs and mountain yellow-legged frogs. Huh. And, uh, so yeah, so each each clade was given a different designation. And in terms of the Federal Endangered Species Act, uh, that decision has not been made yet. It's the US Fish and Wildlife Service is, uh, um, I think still in the midst of, of preparing their, their assessment. And that decision, I think is gonna come out soon, but I don't know exactly when. Well, you're yeah, interesting stuff. Go ahead, Tim. Well, I was just uh, gonna ask about um, you know, when you talk about the clades and the populations, it's easy to understand how you would get genetic, uh, you know, isolation in these watersheds. But that begs the question to me of how did they spread in the first place? <laughs> how would a species like a frog jump from one watershed to another? You know, it's, I, I think as you get very, very high up in a watershed, you know, it's probably not that hard to go over the top on a rainy night. Huh. Uh, but I mean, they've also had millions and millions of years. Yeah, if you uh, have enough time, right? Yeah. Right, right. So I think that the um, the molecular biologists who have studied them and you know sort of 
done the molecular clock, they think this species is like 5 million years old. When I I was an undergraduate at St. Mary's College years ago, my professor was Lawrence Corey, who was a, a... he studied yellow-legged frog evolution in the Sierra. Oh, and, nice! Uh, back in the fifties and sixties, so it was, mm. it was a long time ago. Yeah, pre-genetics. Yeah. Right. Well, they, you know, given the where the hybrids have occurred and more recent genetics, they think that the foothill yellow-legged frogs may be the basal species in the in the cladogram. Uh-huh. And that's the Sierra foothills. Or the coastal ones? No, it's in the in the Sierra. The it's in the uh-huh. Feather River Basin. Uh huh. Yeah. But so, just as a species, you know, there is a whole group of 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 frogs for which Boilei is the the basal species. Uh huh. You know, the conservation strategies uh, uh, parallel to a certain extent what fishery biologists go through with salmon populations in Alaska, for instance, uh, where you've, uh, is it the whole, is it, you know, what, what is, what is a genetic unit that you want to protect? Right. You go from individuals to, you know, as as you move out, you get variability and uh, where do you draw the line? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's a common theme in a lot of, I mean, the same thing with the spotted owls. There's, there's a, you know, subspecies of spotted owl that's threatened, and then there's a subspecies that's that's not, and a right. lot of species are like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it leads to a lot of very deep philosophical questions, really. I mean, you know, right now, uh, I'm I'm working on a, a reintroduction feasibility study for the southwestern clade. So, you know, who, who should be the founders for? a reintroduction program if it's all if a whole clade has shrunk down to just you know either side of one ridge i mean that's likely a genetic bottleneck do we want to reproduce that you know likely highly inbred and bottlenecked population well there aren't any others within that clade so do you use individuals from outside the clade and you know it, it comes down to you know, kind of philosophical questions about what exactly are you protecting and what's the purpose? Is it that we just want, we want frogs and tadpoles on the landscape because of their importance to the food web and to the ecosystem? And so does it matter genetically who they are? I mean, we don't really know yet, like which genes make them well adapted to one habitat versus another. so well, do you one would, just take do you yeah. use founders from places that you know say have similar qualities in terms of how ephemeral the stream is or disease resistance? Um, it, well, yeah, I mean, it, it becomes very philosophical yeah. at a certain point. Yeah, one would think if you uh, had a uh, your population that you're reintroducing had a fair amount of genetic variability that you'd see genetic drift once those things got in and started reproducing in the uh, in in the landscape the new landscape and uh, as long as they survive they might move and they might have the genetic material or be able to uh, evolve slowly or maybe even quickly into forms that are adapted to that and then you've got on top of that you've got uh, uh, climate change and climate change is going to make its own uh, <laughs> for yeah. survival you're going to have to have 
your your own uh, genetic uh, changes in the population uh, to, uh, yeah. to yeah. keep up with the changes in the environment. Yeah, and boy, this year we're really experiencing that. I mean, this is a super duper dry spring. Um, oh yeah, severe and, drought. Yeah, we're back yeah. to nineteen seventies level drought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, over the thirty years that I've been monitoring at the Angelo Reserve, there's been a de definite trend of earlier and earlier breeding by the frogs. And originally, I thought, oh, you know, they breed in response to water temperature and the water warms up earlier, they'll breed earlier. But like this year, it hasn't been that warm. But they, you know, they they're breeding much earlier, even though the water temperature. So I think they cue in on water level as well. And as you know, our as the climate changes and droughts are becoming more and more common, they're they're certainly shifting their behavior. Now the uh, the Eel River is uh, undergoing a lot of uh, anthropocentric change as well, right? I mean, we have the, yes. the we have dams and water projects that were put in a long time ago, and now those are coming under some review, and there may be some big changes in the hydrology of that river, uh, or I don't know how big the changes would be. At the, I don't know how, what proportion of the flow the dams represent, but yeah. are you familiar with that, and uh, are you seeing effects of those projects? Um. So are you referring to Scott Dam and yeah. on the main eel? Yeah, well, the frogs are certainly there, both above and below Scott Dam. Um, but then as you get down to Van Arsdale Reservoir and Cape Horn Dam, there's a lot of non-native species. There, uh, there are a lot of bullfrogs, and, and the yellow-legged frogs don't coexist very well with the bullfrogs. So what I found was that... Uh, the populations downstream of Scott Dam, right below the dam, the populations are very small because uh, the dam releases water from what's called the hypolimnion, the very cold bottom layers of Lake Pillsbury. And it takes several kilometers of flowing and being exposed to the sun to warm up to sufficient temperature to be suitable for the frogs. So there's Tons of frogs in the rice fork eel and the main stem eel flowing into Lake Pillsbury. Then there's very few right downstream of the dam. And then the densities increase until you get to Van Arsdale and there are bullfrogs. And then the yellow-legged frogs become uncommon again. So, Interesting. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I know that um, the... The group that is interested in coming up with a, a two-basin solution of still having some water be exported to the Russian. And uh, so I think they're looking into the feasibility now of removing Scott Dam, but keeping uh, Cape Horn so that some water can be diverted. And I think it'll they'll also change then the lake levels of uh, Lake Mendocino. So, you know, it... But you know, re removing a dam causes a lot of disruption in the short term. So I think it, it will removal of Scott Dam. Uh, it, yeah, I, I, I'm not involved in the decision making at all, but it'll definitely be quite the process. You know. Yeah, I just was curious what you know what the effect uh, of that was having now, and that's a really interesting pattern that it's 
you know, we're used to thinking of the problem in Western rivers as being too much heat, that the waters are too warm. And uh, in the lower reaches of the eel, I think that's a big problem for the salmon and the anadromous fish. Yeah. Is that they don't have cold, enough cold water. Right. And uh, you're describing a situation where the water is actually too cold in part of the river. Right, right. Well, I think the problem when you have a dam is you're asking uh, the same piece of real estate, you know, the main stem of the river to provide uh, two functions. You're asking it to act like a warm water system for all of the warm water adapted species. And you're asking it to act like uh, a, a cold water tributary higher in the watershed because the dam is blocking the access for the fish to get to those cooler habitats. Mm -hmm. So you have these cold water species and warm water species that are in the same watershed. So you could say, say quote unquote, that they co-evolve, but in reality, you know, they're each using a different portion of the watershed. You know, there's a, an incredible level of habitat heterogeneity in a, in a natural system. And when you put a dam in, then, you know, you're, you're decreasing the heterogeneity and you're asking everybody to share the exact same piece piece that's left yeah. but you know the water being too warm is is uh shifts shifts everything so there's like a tipping point and this is research um that one of mary's mary power students keith Buma gregson did um looking at cyanobacteria in in the south fork eel and what they found is that when the w summer water temperatures get too high you get a shift from really productive, healthy, edible algae that fuels a, a giant food, food web and a shift towards these uh, blue-green or algae or cyanobacteria that produce toxins. So mm -hmm. the, uh, there are species like anabina, for example, that can produce both a neurotoxin or um, a liver toxin. And I, I'm sure your listeners have heard about there being dog deaths in the South Fork Eel. And that comes from, if a dog goes swimming in a pool that has a lot of the, the blue-green algae in it, and then they lick their fur, they get the neurotoxin immediately. And, you know, they can have a seizure and die very quickly. So wow. yeah, you know, the water becoming too warm is, is also a bad thing. So, you know, there's... And does that affect the frogs as well? You know, nobody's really studied uh, the effect of the toxins on the frogs. I I do know that some other cyan there's another very common cyanobacteria in, that grows in the South Fork eel called Nostoc. And when I've given tadpoles um, choices of what kinds of algae to eat, they don't want to eat Nostoc. And if I make them eat Nostoc, they don't grow very well, but it doesn't. It didn't seem to kill them, uh, but I, I haven't done experiments with um, the toxic cyanos. But yeah, it would it would be interesting to know. Uh, j just to shift a little bit, um, uh, is the the nitrogen supplies and phosphorus supplies uh, uh, to the system been very well characterized? Uh, I know that. In some river systems, the salmon can bring a lot of marine nitrogen up and be an important uh, uh, pathway for, for uh, 
fertilizing, getting nitrogen into the system and, and being very necessary to keep the ecosystem going. Yeah. Well, what's, you what's, know, what's, I, I think in the, in the eel, it was probably the lamprey historically that did that translocation of nutrients of marine derived nutrients to the freshwater system. Because if you think about it, you know, like the steelhead, they come in and they spawn and then they leave and go back out. Um, And, you know, there certainly are some streams that are important coho streams. And so those salmonids do come in and die and translocate the marine nutrients. So maybe they're not enough. Maybe there are not enough Chinook in the system to really be a major factor. Uh, no, no. Like I mean, they probably gen- were. Probably yeah, were. I mean, generally, yeah. the, there's a lot fewer coho than there used to be. I mean, uh, yeah. I think didn't we hear from Peter Moyle that the the run is about one percent of its yeah what yeah. it was yeah. yeah yep yep and I yeah I think that's that's a really good point yeah I meant to say coho starts with this. <laughs> Chinook starts with the sea anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these, yeah, uh, if, you, but, if, you, if you just join us, our uh, guest uh, today is uh, Dr. Sarah Kupferberg, who's an independent scholar and uh, independent scientist uh, uh, from Berkeley and uh, works uh, out of the Samantha Power Lab to some extent at uh, UC Berkeley where she got her degree. And uh, we're having an interesting conversation about yellow-legged frogs and uh, Eel River and, and uh, the ecology of Eel River. Yeah. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit just before we get off in the scientific weeds again uh, about the Angelo Reserve and what it is and how uh, what, what what's done there. Well, it's called the Angelo Reserve because of... Uh, two very generous people, Heath and Marjorie Angelo, who bought the land and originally they donated it to the Nature Conservancy. And then uh, the Conservancy then um, transferred the property to uh, the UC Natural Reserve System. And the University of California has uh, natural reserves all over the state. And um, they're wonderful resources for scientists to be able to go and do research that is not disturbed. You can put out all kinds of crazy enclosures. You know, you can build things, leave them in the river. You don't need to worry about them being vandalized. Um, And it's the, the Angelo Reserve is a very special place that way. And it also contains within it the watershed for Elder Creek, which has never been logged. So this beautiful old growth, redwoods and dug fir forest. Um, and there's a whole group that that studies uh, the hydrologic cycle in Elder Creek. It's called the um, part of a project called the critical zone, looking at this very thin layer above the rocks um, and how that critical zone between, you know, that connects the atmosphere to the planet essentially in terms of the water cycle. So they're doing really interesting work looking at how um, sort of tracking every every raindrop using isotopes of hydrogen to essentially track raindrops from when they fall uh, as rain or how trees are absorbing 
fog and fog drip and seeing how that all you know, fits into the water cycle. And, and they've actually found that some of the trees are actually um, have their roots going deep into the rocks, like fractured rock and bringing rock water up. So there's actually more water uh, because of the trees um, than, there, than there would be otherwise if it were just falling and running off. Uh, interesting stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so yeah, uh, the Angelo Reserve is is a really wonderful resource, and it's also, uh, you know, I don't know what its latest status is during COVID about being open to the public, but pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, um, you know, there's a parking lot where people can drive and leave their car and then hike in and explore. It's it's a beautiful place to spend a day. Wonderful place to spend the day. I've been there a couple of times and uh, I, I kind of wish I'd gone a little bit more often. I think I may, this may stimulate me to go up again here, make another trip. It's uh, South Fork of the Eel River. It's just gorgeous, uh, beautiful. Yeah, I didn't know that there was an uncut grove in there. That's uh, There's not very many of those in Mendocino County. No, 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 it's, it's, it's. Yeah, there's some there's some pretty big old old redwoods along the course of the channel, but um, mostly it's dominated by by duck fir. But yeah, there's some nice big big old redwood trees. Well, let's go back to the frogs. I think uh, I'm not sure we got we're done with that story. It, to <laughs> me, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have another uh, frog question. Yeah, go sure. ahead. I mean, they're they're very. I mean, they are really a very cool species. I mean, just, there aren't that, there aren't any other frogs that are so highly specialized for being in rivers in California, the way these are. Yeah, they do sound like a super California kind of animal, just yes, extremely yes. adapted to the California riparian lifestyle. Yeah. Yes, yes. And what's actually really cool about them is that the males call from underwater. Ah. And, um, they change the frequency of their call depending on the background noise. So um, I, I had the unique opportunity to go in the field with someone who was doing her uh, research specifically on their calls, a young woman named Courtney Silver, who was uh, doing her master's at Chico, at, at Cal State Chico. And it completely blew my mind. She put a hydrophone, and actually I got these, the, the earphones I'm wearing now I got so I could listen to the frogs. So she put the hydrophone underwater and, you know, I had never heard them after, you know, decades of studying them. I would maybe hear a release call. If I was measuring one, the male will make a little noise like, you know, I'm not a female, let go of me kind of thing. Um, but I had never heard their call. And they do all kinds of intricate, like drumming and chuckles and squawks. And they have conversation. All the different males are having conversations. And then when she looked at the um, sound print of all the recordings, what she found is that the frogs that are close to a cascade or a waterfall actually include a like an ultrasonic element to their call that can be heard by other frogs, not by us but it can be heard by other frogs and uh, against the backdrop of, you know, of the sound of rushing water. But, you know, she didn't find that everywhere. It was very site, site specific where she found that element. 
to their call. So they're, they're really incredible little creatures. Yeah, my question about reproduction was, um, do they have, they obviously have good and bad ears, right? The yellow-legged yes. frogs. And uh, if they have enough good years, uh, is that enough to keep the population going? Or they'll be maybe, like this year, maybe a dry year with not much flow or temperatures are too warm. But, it, you know, the last time we had a good wet year, it may have, been, may have produced enough frogs to kind of uh, paper over the, the bad years in terms of total uh, reproduction. Yes, yes, that is definitely the case. And actually, uh, it, there, there's a, a term in, in population biology called having a bonanza year and yeah. so that is completely how they how the populations persist is that they have these bonanza recruitment years where um there's very very high survival to metamorphosis and those seem to maintain the population so over the 30 years that i've been studying them there's you know huge interannual fluctuations in the numbers of of adult females that are laying eggs and if you just took, if you took out snippets of five years at a time, 10 years at a time, you could say, oh, this population is increasing leaps and bounds. Oh, this population is in drastic decline. But over the longer term, over the 30 year span, it's actually, you know, flat. How many, it's stable. How many, stable. How many banner years have you had in 30 years? You know? uh, Maybe four. Uh -huh. So you know, there's some a few very high peaks, and then you see like a long, slow decline, and then another banner year. But what's really interesting, and it took me quite a while to figure this out. You know, when I would see like huge numbers of egg masses, it wasn't always like right after a wet year. And I was like, what is driving these ups and downs? And I think it was. Um, maybe 2006 was one of those banner years and i started to think back about well what was it like when the frogs that are probably laying their eggs for the first time this year what was it like the year that they were born when they were laid as eggs and then i went back through my whole time series and i thought about the lag between uh being born and being able to breed yourself. So females take three years to reach ah. reproductive maturity. So then I yeah. went back to all of my survival data, you know, going back to my sticks. Uh, did this egg mass hatch? Did this one get scoured away? Did this one get dried up? And then I, so I went back to my survival data and compared it to my numbers who are laying eggs. And I found this very consistent three-year lag time. There is no significant correlation with a one-year lag, a two-year lag, a four-year lag, but always a three-year lag between the hydrologic conditions in spring in one year and the number of breeding three years later. And that's how I figured out that a lot of what determines their success is uh, the, the hydrology. You know, did, did we get a late storm in May or June that wiped everybody out? Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're very sensitive to, to the hydrologic conditions, so, but it, it, they it took me a long time to learn that. So they, they, do they reproduce at three years old? 
the females do. The males yeah. can, can reach yeah. a reproductive size yeah. after two years. And in yeah. Southern California, the, the females can reach a reproductive size at, at age two. And what's really interesting is if they're starting to be now a captive rearing program at the Oakland Zoo, trying to uh, help out some populations in the Sierra that are really in trouble. So they collected eggs or salvaged eggs uh, in the Feather River that uh, would have dried up and they were reared in the zoo. And being fed constantly and not hibernating over winter, they were able to get females that could reproduce at, at year one. So, uh, so they ordinarily would hibernate in the, in the midwinter when it's cold? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in places where it's really dry, they might also have a period of estivation, like where they just find a, a, like a wet crack or crevice during the dry season. I mean, there's a lot of mis mysteries still about how, how they survive in the drier parts of the mm -hmm. state. Yeah, uh, Red-legged frogs do that, right? They, yes. When they, their ponds dry up, they, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, red-legged frogs are, are very terrestrial, really. They they yeah. like ground squirrel burrows. Um, I mean, there there's some anecdotes. Uh, like I know I had a friend who was a, a construction monitor at a site where they were redoing a bridge and he found some yellow-legged frogs at a bridge abutment in a little crack um, that was still moist. The whole river channel was dry, but, you know, they had found this one little moist crack, but it's only, you know, little anecdotes like that. We don't really, really know much about how, how they handle dry conditions. Yeah, it'd be a hard thing to study because it it's not a normal circumstance. You have to wait for an unusually dry condition to come along and then you have to be in just the right spot right. and have just the right funding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long, how long do the adults act normally live? What's a typical lifespan for these things? Uh, well, I think probably most females only live to breed a couple of years. Um, uh -huh. But then there's a small percentage that, um, that live to be quite old. Uh, so another unique thing about these frogs is they have unique chin spots. So uh, some other colleagues developed this technique of taking photographs of their chins and making mugshot books and comparing <laughs> them. <laughs> and you know, so they, based on those uh, those mugshots and mark recapture, they have some individuals that, you know, are more than a decade old. I think maybe the record is like a 14 year old frog. Um, but uh, I, I think most of the rest of them don't live to be that long, but there's some that, you know, they have it figured out. They know they, they have their spot in their tributary. They have their breeding spot. They've got their migration route figured out. That's a, that's actually astonishing when you think about what they have to do to live to that age. Uh, because yeah. as you pointed out earlier, they're you know they're a food source for a lot of predators, a lot yes. Yes. of predators. <laughs> and if they're moving up and down that river uh, and making that journey up and back every year, they're getting exposed to predation all along the way. Yeah. And for a frog to do that fourteen times, yeah, that's yeah. really astonishing. 
Yeah, it is. It's they. I mean, they're a humble little creature, but they do amazing things. And you know, I, I, I mean, well, I mean, look at what the migrations of monarch butterflies. I mean, animal migrations are just yeah. astounding. Yeah, they are. There's kind yeah. of a seem like a parallel to uh, some of the marine fish populations because uh, the females here only live two years but most of the reproduction is done kind of at three years and older. So most of the female, uh, most of the production reproduction is done by a few individuals in the population. Isn't the big that, old ones. Yeah. The big old but, ones. It, but it sounds a little different here. Uh, if I understood you correctly at the start of the interview, Dr. Kupferberg, you said that each female lays one clutch. Yes. Each female lays one clutch, but the number of eggs in that clutch really varies with uh -huh. uh, the body size of the female. So a, a young, small female who's breeding for the first time may lay 500 eggs, whereas uh, you know, a really big old female could lay 2,000 or uh -huh. you know, 2,500. So the average is somewhere around 1,500, but mm. that's you know a span. And, uh, and what's very interesting is that it seems like the largest females breed early, uh, which, and because I usually find very small egg masses at the tail end of the breeding season. So in some years, the breeding season is very quick, you know, a couple weeks, everybody's bred. But if it's cool and rainy and it's an extended breeding season, it could go on for six weeks. Um, it's funny, there's a term called explosive breeders, which I always think of like as these frogs blowing, literally blowing up. <laughs> but uh, so some years it's explosive and other years it's prolonged. But uh, but it's very curious to me and I don't have the answer why. And I, I think about it a lot. Why do the larger females breed early? Because it's kind of riskier. You know, the earlier in spring, a female lays her eggs, the higher the chances there might be a late season rain and wash everything away. Um, you know, just the hydrograph is less stable the earlier in the spring you get. So there's got to be some huge advantage to, you know, having your tadpoles be the first ones, you know, whether it's avoiding larval competition. It just seems to me why, why would they take such a high risk? There must be some big payoff that, uh, you know, that selects for this trait of breeding early if you're large. Do we know if, if the uh, if the most fecund the, the tadpoles for the most fecund females uh, have some survival advantages? Uh, oh yeah, do they get any kind of head start? Well, or I mean, maybe they, certainly wish... they're they're bigger um, and they metamorphose earlier. So mm -hmm. I, I think it you know. It hasn't been studied in this species, but it has been studied in in some uh, European ranid frogs that, uh, you know, the bigger you are at metamorphosis, the higher your survival, your the your chance of surviving your first winter. But what's also, again, it's another element of synchronicity. If you think about when the bulk of insects are emerging from the river, it's late summer. So if they can turn into a, a little froglet sooner and switch from eating algae to eating insects, they can grow a lot that first fall before they yeah. um, 
migrate. So when the first rains come, that's their cue. Up, oh, time to leave the main stem, head upstream. Um, so, oops. Um, so I think if, if, I was trying to identify that bird call. No, no, actually, that was <laughs> it. Wasn't a bird. That was a. I, actually, it's a Yosemite toad. My 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 ringtone on my phone is a toad. Okay, call. Tim. Tim, put down your lifetime list. You know, it's not a bird. Yeah, yeah, uh, can't count that one. <laughs> I apologize. I should have put my my phone on mute. I'm sorry. Um, well, we just we just learned something. Uh, now our listeners know how to identify uh, Yosemite toads by <laughs> vocalization. <laughs> yeah, actually, the the Center for Biological Diversity has this really cool app where you can down, download all kinds of animal sounds to use as ringtones. So, oh, I love it. Your your <laughs> listeners might might. Uh, really enjoy choosing. You could have a spotted owl as your ringtone. You could have a rattlesnake. Um, there's, yeah, they've loons. Okay, thanks for the tip. I'll put a link to that up on the Ecology Hour website. Well, that does bring us, though, we're getting close to the end of, the, of our time here. And so uh, I'll put a, we'll have some links up on our website. The, uh, that's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. And, uh, I'll put one up for the Center for Biological Diversity in case people want to play with their phones. But uh, Dr. Kufferberg, do you have some sources for where people could find more information about uh, yellow-legged frogs and or the Angelo Preserve and other topics um, of interest? Well, the Angelo has a good website um, and a lot of the different research projects and research groups um, have information there about about their work. So like the Critical Zone Project and Mary Powers Lab, there's, uh, you know, little mini stories about what people do there. Um, the Forest Service has a very nice website for um, Foothill Yellow-Legged Frogs. And if people really want to dive deep into uh, their biology, actually, I would recommend uh, the Species Assessment, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife made in, in terms of making their decision to protect the frogs under the California Endangered Species Act. That document was just, it's a superb, superb uh, piece of scholarship. Very, you know, it has beautiful maps, um, really wonderful, concise summaries of all the literature, and it has great history of where and when the frogs have been seen all over their range. So I would highly recommend checking that out on the CDFW website too. Okay, we'll have links for all of those on the Ecology Hour website. Again, ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thank you very much, Dr. Kupferberg. This has been a really great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Super. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great evening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.